You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It was the countdown to midnight and the miss of the kick at the Peach Bowl all at the same time. And somebody that was there who usually talks politics, but we're going to talk a little sports this morning, was Greg Bluestein. Greg Bluestein, I mean, it was like the best game I've ever seen. Not the best game we ever played, but the best game I've ever seen. I agree. I mean, it was right up there with the Rose Bowl for me. I was on the sidelines for both of the games, but it was incredible. That moment, that, that, that audio just now set my heart racing all over again. I'm telling you what, and it was, it was, there were several things, of course, in this game, and it is the Martha Zoller Show, and I'm back, and I'm really happy to be back. I'll tell you the magical mystery tour that was my few days off uh, later on in the program, but uh, there are... You know, it was it. There were mistakes. There were missed field goals. Uh, the defense looked gas. The Georgia defense looked gas from the beginning of the game, at least from my perspective on my big TV. And I, I just, you know, they just didn't play their best. But they scratched it out and ended up winning. Uh, and I think really a pivotal call. You, I used to criticize Kirby that his one weakness was time management. But boy, that timeout call where. Ohio State converted that fourth down was major. Yeah, and 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 kind of sniffing out the fake punt there. Early, that was probably one of the most pivotal calls of the game. And Georgia just seemed like a different team than it was five years ago. This, this reminded us. I mean, Mercedes-Benz Stadium used to be a house of horrors for Georgia, and now it's a house where where the team dominates. Now I do know that. Um, you, I don't know if you were on the field when they had the presentation and they were giving the uh, defensive player and offensive player of the game. And, of course, I understand that, you know, they have to give them from the winning team. And clearly the defensive player, the guy that sacked um, uh, C.J. Stroud twice, was the, clearly the defensive player on the Georgia side. And Stetson, I guess, was the offensive player, but uh, C.J. Stroud was something else. I mean, he was hard to defend against. Uh, he seemed impossible to stop. He was making these unbelievable passes, completions, uh, you know, from his back heel, from his off foot, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of going down. <laughs> you know, he, would, he, would, he, would, he would pull off these incredible completions. But Georgia found a way to stop him, and, uh, and that was the way we won. So Kirby, very humbly at the end of the game, said, look, Judging by what I've seen, I don't know if I'm ready for TCU. Uh, Stetson Bennett had a tough night. I mean, he wasn't one of these guys sugarcoating it about what they need to do. I personally, this is my personal view, it's too long to have four weeks between games. It's, it's, you never know what you're going to get. I like our odds a lot better with the nine days. Uh, same here. I mean, the good thing about the four weeks is it gave some of our, our, our guys some time to recover. Matt McConkey, others who were banged up. Uh, but the bad news is exactly what you said. They're rusty. Uh, and now there's not, not nearly enough time to let that rust form with just a few days off between, between now and, and the next game. So to shift to politics a little bit, I don't know if you saw the tweet that was from a Democratic strategist that said, hey, Democrats of Georgia, please don't complain about the short day of um, 
of the first day of the session as if it's some kind of terrible thing because we are so out of step with what real Georgians are interested in. <laughs> Did you see that tweet? It was very I funny. Didn't, I didn't see it, I, but I wrote about that shortened schedule and and I and, and the thing I always remind folks is, is that just as many Democrats are going to L.A. and went to Indianapolis last year as Republicans. I mean, Stacey Evans, well, the, the former gubernatorial candidate for, for, for Democrats back in 2018, she was, you know, sitting kind of front and center in Indianapolis. I don't know if she plans to go to L.A., but she's a diehard Georgia fan, and so are so many other Democrat lawmakers who, uh, you know, who have no problem with a shortened schedule. And frankly, you know, most days that, that first Monday is a shortened day anyway. Not, no, no substantive work, work gets done for weeks at the state legislature doing these, uh, these kind of even year, uh, sorry, odd year, year uh, sessions. Because there were these weird things during the campaign, like where Stacey Abrams scheduled a like an event in Athens at three o'clock on a game day, and um, that wasn't related to the game. It wasn't like a tailgating thing. I mean, it's a common thing for political candidates of both parties to have these tailgate events at University of Georgia football games. But like Stacey, on two occasions, had these like separate events off in different places. At at weird times on game days, and it just seems to me to be out of touch. I realize there's a lot of people that don't follow football, but it seems to be you want to be where the people are. Yeah, I kept on thinking that Stacey Abrams would take advantage of game day saying, hey, you know, this is my plan to legalize sports gambling. Something, this is my plan to expand Hope Scholarship uh, for needs-based. You know, do something to tie it in, because I was writing stories about how Brian Kemp, how how Herschel Walker, of course, and even how Senator Warnock were using game days to try yeah. to, uh, you know, mobilize their supporters. But and instead, there was one game day, I think it was against Tennessee, where she actually wore orange on TV. And I don't think she did that on purpose, but many, many Democrats, including folks from her own campaign, were kind of like saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why did she do that? I know. So you mentioned Stacey, Stacey Evans, and I... I she's somebody that I wonder what she's going to do next, because I think she put up a really good fight. And clearly after this kind of shellacking that uh, the I call them very fondly, the ladies from Atlanta had in this last election, uh, that there needs to be some discussion about what Democratic policy is. And some friends of mine, Theron Johnson, uh, in the last Georgia gang, made a comment about. Uh, guns that was very interesting, saying that we don't want to limit law-abiding gun owners. We want to uh, make sure that illegal guns are off the streets. And I had a conversation with him afterwards saying, that's a little shift in your policy. The first question I asked him, quite frankly, is do you have a new client that's a Second Amendment client? Because Theron, <laughs> as you know, and I, and she goes, no, no, I just have been talking to a lot of people in my community, and they say, wait a minute, guys, we don't want to get rid of all guns because our why and our daughters are, are are getting legal guns because they don't feel safe in Atlanta, and we want to be able to own guns legally. Uh, we just don't want it, we don't want thugs to have guns, okay? And and so there's this shift in this nuance. And I've talked to other people like Michael Thurman and other people in the Democratic Party over the last two weeks, just kind of wishing them well with the holidays and things like that. And there's going to be a shift in how they talk about the gun issue in Georgia. That'll be interesting. I, I haven't I haven't necessarily seen that yet, but I don't I don't doubt that could happen. In general, I think there's gonna be a bigger shift overall. There's some soul searching going on from Democrats because of course Senator Warnock won, but everything else 
at the top of the ticket was bad news for, for the Democratic Party. And there's going to be thoughts about and there's going to be talking about how to appeal to the swing voters in a way that Senator Warnock was able to, but in a way that Stacey Abrams, Charlie Bailey, Jen Jordan, others were not quite able to, to get across the finish line or even close to across the finish line. Jen Jordan and Charlie Bailey got more votes than Stacey Abrams did. Um, and so there's going to be all these all this talk about how Democrats can, you know, A, energize their base, but B, reach out to that middle of the electorate to prove crucial in both the governor's race and in the Senate race. Well, and what you saw as we're kind of a few weeks out now from this is you saw the fact that uh, you had Republican candidates that got, you know, 52, 53, 54 percent of the vote. And then the best, you know, even though Governor, even though Senator Warnock won, it was what, 51.8 or 51.5, something like that. So he still underperformed based on what a majority is. So what you saw was there were several Republican candidates that figured out how to get Republicans, Democrats that were leaning, you know, as well as independents. And, and there is this smaller Republican and Democrat base and this larger and I don't mean that independent means they're unaffiliated. I think these are people that are unhappy with the mainstream of whatever their party was. And now they're calling themselves independent. So I think they can be won back by whoever tries to do it. But I don't know if the message is there. And look, we got problems on the right and the left with messaging. I think there's no doubt about that. Sure. And not to trivialize it too much, but I think Senator Warnock won because he claimed the center. And I think Governor Kemp won because he claimed the center. Both of them were able to move to the middle in a way that Governor Kemp would be the last person to tell you he's a centrist. He's, he's very conservative. Yes. And, and Senator Warnock is liberal. He, his, his voting record is liberal. But they both found ways to appeal to the center in a way their opponents uh, couldn't. Yeah, it's, it's like, okay, so my daughter's like my liberal, um, uh, you know, kind of barometer where she lives in Buckhead. She's an artist. She, you know, she and her husband love that kind of city life where they walk everywhere and do all of that kind of stuff. And they're pretty liberal in their politics. And, um, you know, she said, you know, not only do I like Governor Kemp, even though I don't like his positions on guns, I don't like his position on on life. But things are pretty good and i feel like he's he's working on the issue she ended up voting for brian kemp because of that even though she voted for stacey abrams the last time she was one of those flip votes i would and i would wager about two three maybe even four percent electorate was was there with her and that they were normally democratic leaning voters or or at least uh, swing voters who had problems with kemp's stance on guns and abortion and maybe other conservative issues but like the where he had we stood on education or the economy or other facets. Or COVID. And that's why, COVID. Or COVID, yeah, or the pandemic. And that's why Kemp comes into 2023, comes into the second session with such a unique place in Georgia politics because we don't know much about what he wants to do in a second term. He just, he never really had to make that many promises because he was ahead of Stacey Abrams in every single poll, every single public poll since the primary of last year. So he didn't have to make that many promises uh, he comes in with a national figure. He comes in with a national fundraising base now. Um, he's a known quantity, not far beyond Georgia. And so he has this unique opportunity. Uh, does he want to take the session and kind of make it a legacy session where, where he does what Nathan Deal did, was uh, focus on uh, criminal justice reform, make it make you know a, a major issue his calling card? Or does he continue to you know uh, push for still significant changes, um, but, but nothing that could be you know, so sweeping as as what Nathan Deal did with criminal justice. 
So one final question on January 11th, when I hope we are still celebrating the second win of a national championship for the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, the gas tax goes up. And I don't I haven't heard any rumblings whether they're going to extend it one more time. The governor has says has said no up until this point. Does that affect him at all if gas goes up 30 percent, you know, on January 12th? I, I really doubt it. I mean, at this point, it was something that both Stacey Abrams and, and Governor Kemp endorsed, which was essentially um, suspending that gas tax for the entire election year. It's not an election year anymore. And, you know, and, and it, it, there is a huge surplus, but the, the tax coffers have taken a hit in, for, for infrastructure funding. And so my, my, my hunch is the governor keeps to his word and, and allows that gas tax to go back into effect uh, to keep that, that money uh, back in the coffers. But we'll see. Well, and we've got a lot of money out there. And, you know, as uh, Terry England famously said, uh, the former head of the Appropriations Committee famously said uh, that the hard years are not when there's not much money. The hard years is when there's plenty of money. (laughs) Yeah, more than $6 billion. And that's going to be the big question for the session is how lawmakers intend to use it. We know that the governor wants to spend about $2 billion of it. Uh, new tax refunds, but that leaves an awful lot left to spend or left to save. So we'll see. Well, and also one thing to kind of watch is uh, there's a, still a lot of CARES money out there for uh, school systems, and a lot of the smaller school systems have asked the Biden administration if they can have an extension on how long they have to spend that money because it's almost more money than they can spend. And I'm watching that closely as a board member, but also, you know, that, that I like the fact that these small school systems are saying we don't want to invest this money in things that are going to cost us in the long run. So it's a it's a real fiscally responsible way to look, but we don't know what the Biden administration is going to say yet. Greg Bluestein, thank you so much, and go dogs. Go dogs. All right. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We've got Steve Moore with us uh, from uh, one of the best economists in the country. And before we get to the talk about the economy, Steve, what impact, if anything, does this kind of drama in the House over who's going to be the speaker have on the markets right now? Well, good morning, Martha. Happy Happy New New Year. Year. (laughs) Look, I think at this point I would put the odds at about 60 percent that uh, McCarthy will be the speaker. But, you know, it's it's uh, it's very dicey at this point. I think the vote is coming up when is it in the next couple of days, isn't it? Or I may, think it's noon the, today, actually. Noon today. OK. Yeah. So, uh, and and so there will be potentially multiple ballots. You know, he has to get um, to 218. And that means he has to get virtually every Republican in the House caucus because all the Democrats are going to vote against whoever the Republican is so that you have to have almost unanimity. And uh, I think he might get there. And now, look, the conservatives are basically saying some of them just don't like McCarthy. And by the way, I'm kind of agnostic on McCarthy. Yep. I mean, if it were between McCarthy and Scalise, I'd rather have Scalise. Me too. You know, Me too. But, yeah. but you know, McCarthy is, is uh, you know, he'll be fine. Um, what the conservatives are doing, which I think is kind of smart, is saying, look, if you're going to be the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, we need as conservatives – uh, some concessions about, you know, putting more conservatives on committees and things of that nature. So we'll see how this plays out. Um, 
I I think that you know it's I can't predict what's going to happen today. I mean, and uh, we will see whether McCarthy is able to cut a deal. Uh, but you know, look, here's the other thing that I've been chomping at the bit to talk to you about. Um, have you seen what um, Mitch McConnell is going to do today? No. He is going to have a press conference in Kentucky with you know who? With who? Joe Biden. Joe, Joe Biden. Biden. Oh no. This is outrageous. I'm reading the Washington Examiner headline today. McConnell to host Biden in Kentucky for events celebrating President's economic plan and the big spending, $2 trillion spending bill. Is this man insane? Is he crazy? He is consorting with the enemy? He's, he's celebrating another $2 trillion spending bill? I mean, shame on these Republicans. I think this happened right before Christmas. I forget whether you and I have talked since, uh, since then, uh, Martha, I mean, this was a betrayal by Republicans to vote for this horrific spending bill. Have and I got to tell you, I've been talk, talking to conservatives and, um, <clears throat> you know, activists, conservative leaders, uh, Republican donors. They are irate in anger at what the Republicans did in signing off on this massive spending bill. Have you noticed the change in narrative of all of a sudden they're talking about all this bipartisan success know, that exactly. Biden has had? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's the whole point of this is, a you know, Biden's going to go to Kentucky. Oh, we have a new bipartisanship. I'm such a great leader. Republicans, Democrats all agree. It's like, no, you know, you've got some uh, rhino Republicans who've signed off on these massive spending bills. And look, I have been someone who has not been, a, you know, a severe critic of McConnell. McConnell's done some very, very good things on the court and making sure that we yep. have good Supreme Court justices. But when it comes to the economy, and he's just a big spending Republican. And this cannot whole because we're playing right into the hands of our enemies there were 22 senate republicans who voted for this new massive spending bill you know when they when they campaigned on getting the budget under control and doing something about the deficit yeah it is i mean it is a mess when you look at this you wonder if mcconnell is trying to like do some kind of newt gingrich bill clinton thing you know where they they had this big summit remember that on welfare yeah. reform yeah. and all of that kind of stuff i don't know but i think you know i think that what's on the biden side he is very overconfident right now and he feels like he's going to cruise right into re-election but it is a long time until 2024 and then on the mcconnell side i don't understand what he's doing honestly I don't I don't think anybody can figure it out. And, you know, the problem, but it's not just Mitch McConnell. I mean, first of all, your two Georgia senators have obviously voted for this horrific bill. And, and you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer at the start of the year, but I got to tell your listeners loud and clear that if we stay on this path that we've been on for the last two years under Biden of spending $4 trillion that we don't have, $4 trillion, not $4 billion, if we continue to spend money, if we continue to pass bills, did you see several of the Democratic Senators admitted that they didn't even read a page of that bill. There was 4,000 pages. Most of them have no idea what's in the bill that they... Remember, we used to make fun of, uh, of Nancy Pelosi for saying, we'll read it after we pass it. Well, that's exactly what they've done again. Do you think Mitch McConnell read that bill? Do you think that uh, any of these 20 Republicans in the Senate who voted for that bill read it or know what's in it? Uh, you know, I, 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 if I sound a little angry, I am, because this is not the way to conduct business. We have a financial crisis that we're facing if we continue to spend and borrow money like this in Washington. And these guys are, are whistling Dixie. So you're not allowed to say that anymore, Steve. You know, you can't what? say whistling Dixie. Okay, oh. but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> is that, I'm is just that kidding. politically incorrect? 
I know. I was, I was like, so so how do we get, okay, so we're starting the year off chaotically then on the Republican side. So what's it going to take to get people back on track again? You know, <laughs> I want the Republicans to be true to their principles. Lower taxes, less government, more individual freedom, financial responsibility, uh, you know, the kinds of core values that we believe in as Republicans. And when they start acting like Democrats, now you mentioned the thing with Gingrich and, and Clinton. I remember that. And by the way, though, in those negotiations, Clinton moved to the right. Republicans didn't move to the left. What's That's happening? Right. I mean, that well, and they moved to the right. And if, happening, you, if you recall, yeah, no. those four years were actually some of the yeah. last years that we balanced budgets, yeah, balanced budget, exactly. you know, paid off a little debt. I know people think John Kasich went off a cliff and went crazy. But if you recall, he was the budget committee chairman during he, that and he time. Put good budget together. Yeah. He did a great job during that period of time. So uh, Here's a good idea, Martha. I know we're running out of time. Republicans should basically say, we are coming up with a balanced budget plan over, say, 10 years and saying, because there is going to be a come to Jesus moment sometime in the next six or nine. I don't know when it's going to be exactly, but there will be a budget standoff and Republicans have to hold their ground and saying, we are not passing another budget, Joe Biden. We're not signing off it to, until you agree to an eight or 10 year plan that leads us to a balanced budget. And if the balanced budget is not on the table, we're not approving another penny. And stick on that rock of Gibraltar and don't falter, don't blink, don't back down. I mean, are you with me on this? I am. Martha? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, because, that, and then you know, what are the Democrats in the media? Oh, Republicans want to shut down the government. They want to default on the debt. No, we are going to have a financial crisis unless we start getting this spending and debt under control. And that's, I'm speaking to the Republican House Republican Caucus next week, and that's exactly the message I'm going to deliver. You cannot blink on this. It's your responsibility as a conservative, an American, as someone who believes in, you know, truth, justice, and the American way to take a hard stand on this because I got to tell you, we are going to have a financial crisis in this country if we don't get the debt under control. Yeah, we can't keep spending like this. We can't yeah, exactly. keep spending, you know, uh, you know, and, and we've got a president that doesn't know the difference between debt and deficit. He constantly <laughs> no. makes the mistake. Well, of, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Mitch McConnell, I mean, if, if what we're saying is right, and I think we're in agreement here, then why in the hell is, is Mitch McConnell having a victory tour with joe biden right because now because he's looking he at it as money coming into kentucky it's what all yeah. these politicians exactly. do yeah. and he doesn't yeah. care that it's there's nothing behind it he doesn't care that it's just printed money he just yeah. wants to wants to be able to take credit because he's got issues at home too i have two kids that live in kentucky okay uh -huh. and he is not the most popular guy uh <laughs> in kentucky not, i know I all know. right you know who is by the way, you know who is very popular in Kentucky? Who? Rand Paul. Yes. And he's the one guy who's standing up for principle. we got to get behind Rand Paul. He's the one guy who took a rock-solid stand against this, I, I, they call it omnibus, I call it omnibusted bill. It's going to bust our country. Absolutely. Steve Moore, thanks yeah. for being with us today. <laughs> Happy New Year. You too. Take care. Bye. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN.
Patricia Murphy uh, is with us right now, and she is one of the political insiders for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And there are, Patricia, I mean, before we talk about what we're, you're looking for in the Georgia legislative session, we got a little drama unfolding. We got a couple of Georgia congressmen or one Georgia congressman that may not be sporting McCarthy. You got a couple of new Georgia congressmen that haven't said one way or another. So it's an interesting thing to watch. Uh, it's interesting and it's really unprecedented. It really just doesn't happen that you have a candidate for speaker, somebody who's already been internally elected by their caucus now looking at January 3rd, which is the day they always swear in a speaker, um, and really not having the votes. It's not that he may not have the votes. He just doesn't have the votes right now. And so um, McCarthy has made enormous concessions to um, conservatives, to new members, um, all in the hopes of sort of cobbling together the votes he needs to get elected speaker by Republicans. But he's not there yet, and there's not much left he can give away. And so um, even if he does get elected speaker, he'll go in just an incredibly weakened position. And it's not the day you think Republicans would have since they just won the house and they should be celebrating. You know, it's it is a different sort of situation, right? When you know, I think back to when Newt Gingrich, um, you know, didn't actually lose the house, but did um, lose some ground in the house, and then he resigned, and then Bob Livingston was going to be the speaker, and he had some somewhat by today's standards was really kind of nothing, uh, but he ended up he ended up saying he wasn't going to be the speaker, and then we ended up with Dennis Hastert, who ultimately did have some problems that that had to be dealt with, so that was a little unsettling that period of time, but. Uh, it's it's surprising to me. And Andrew Clyde, our ninth district congressman, hasn't said he's in the group of senators that I mean, congressmen that say they're not sure. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, we're getting down to it. They're going to start taking um, early votes on that House floor, initial votes, um, you know, the first ballot. And uh, we don't know what Clyde's going to do. He was, as you said, he was in that group of nine House members who said that they haven't seen anything from McCarthy so far. And that's after all of his concessions um, that would lead them to support him for speaker. Um, the other situation is it's just not at all clear who would be speaker if not Kevin McCarthy. So if he's not going to get the votes, who else is? Is there some other candidate uh, who's waiting in the wings? What's the most surprising to me is that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been so effusively positive about Kevin McCarthy. Um, you know, she's obviously seen as um, somebody who was uh, very far to the right, uh, was assumed to speak for kind of all of the Trump Republicans or many of the Trump Republicans in the House. But those are a lot of the people who have peeled off from McCarthy. So it's a situation where Green is with McCarthy, who's you know sort of a 20-year creature of the House. Um, and then other uh, conservatives are are not with Green or McCarthy. So and this is to take very that strange dynamic. To take that one step further, she and Matt Gates traveled all over the country talking about the election. Yeah. And Matt Gates is leading this charge. Who I think Matt Gates is a compromised member anyway. He's just looking for the limelight because he is he is a weakened member anyway, in my view, because of problems that he's had. But uh, they've split on this. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. And, uh, you know, I personally, I 
don't want to trade a Democrat, a California Democrat for a California Republican. And I would rather have somebody like Steve Scalise. Now, Steve is staying with uh, McCarthy at this point in time. Uh, I don't know Chip Roy well enough who said he's running. And there's a couple of other people that are talking about it. So I think it's going to be a really, you know, for us that watch this, it's going to be a fun day to watch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I live for days like this, and I'm kicking myself for not going to D.C. I should have bought a ticket. Well, <laughs> and I don't up. think... Usually but, it's so ceremonial. But, folks, we've gotten so used to saying democracy's in the balance. Democracy's not in the balance. This is rules of the House. They will get this sorted out. It may mean that the Republicans are, are delayed a day or two getting started, but it's not going to be the end of the world, ultimately, in my view. I mean, no, democracy is not in the balance, but I would say Republicans' negotiating position is in the balance. They've got a situation where what McCarthy has already agreed to is that any five members of the House can call for his reconsideration. Um, and that gives a just a tiny fraction of Republicans the power to recall McCarthy or or potentially any other Republican speaker who might have to agree to that concession. Um, and so... You, you have a speaker who is really answering to any tiny faction at any one time, and that doesn't give the speaker a lot of room to run or sort of, um, you know, kind of cajole his forces. And then it makes you wonder, if he can't get his own votes lined up, what power is he going to bring to that position um, as he goes up against uh, President Biden and Senate Democrats? You really want to be negotiating with a kind of a more united front than this, but we'll see where it ends up today. Well, whoever gets in as speaker, their stake in the ground needs to be on the budget and getting back to regular order. And that's what I'm writing about this week, folks. So if you go to Access WDUN, it'll be up later in the week because, uh, you know, we've got to have people that are willing to get the budget back on regular budget order. This way that we're doing things is not working and it's going to be a day of reckoning at some point in time. Now, the flip side of that is we got all kinds of money on the state level, uh, where, as Terry England famously said, the problem is not when you have too little money because it's easy to say no it's when you have too much money so the georgia state legislature is getting ready to get in i think we're going to see more uh interaction from governor kemp than we have in the other sessions because there's so many new faces what are you looking for on the horizon Yes, yeah, so I think we're going to be looking, um, just as you said, what role exactly Governor Kemp is playing. Um, it's also an unusual situation here in Georgia because there will be a new House Speaker and a new Lieutenant Governor who is the President of the Senate. And so we have um, two just brand new leaders and we don't know exactly what to expect from John Burns and um, uh, uh, the incoming Lieutenant Governor, um, Burt Jones. So we're going to really look to see how they establish their own leadership and what issues they bring forward. We've been told to expect a slow start um, for this session because of that and because these leaders are going to have to go through sort of an entire process of appointing um, committee chairs, deciding on an agenda, um, working together to get to a consensus on that or maybe not, and that takes time. So we expect a slow start to this uh, General Assembly. Um, before he passed away, Speaker Ralston had said he wanted to create what he was calling an opportunity agenda 
really focusing on sort of the nuts and bolts of um, uh, tax, more, potentially more tax cuts, which Governor Kemp has also suggested he'd be looking for, and kind of an economic-focused agenda. That's what Ralston had wanted, and we're going to have to hear from both Jones and um, uh, the incoming speaker, John Burns, what what their issues are, we haven't really heard so far. Um, we do also know a second quick thing. Uh, they'll be focused on um, crime, kind of anti-crime measures. Atlanta, obviously, crime has continued um, at very high levels, but that's a situation all around the state. And so I think all of these members, whether it's rural, urban, north, south, inside Atlanta, outside the city, um, that has continued to be a really important statewide issue that lawmakers we know are going to focus on as well. And today is the special election to replace uh, David Ralston. Uh, Cherie Ralston and one other candidate, I think, are on the ballot. And, uh, you know, so we'll watch that. I expect Cherie Ralston's going to win that race, and we'll see what happens with that. But you mentioned Lieutenant Governor Jones, and I'll let you go with this. He's been amazingly quiet through this whole transition. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because of all he doesn't want to poke his head up and get asked these questions about uh, the January 6th committee or the electors or any of that stuff, or if it's just, hey, he's going to wait until the first day of session when he gets sworn in, and then we're going to see what he's going to do. But I think he's been amazingly quiet. He has been unusually quiet. I would completely agree with that. And um, he has kept an extremely low profile. I do think that the January 6th committee and um, the Fulton County investigation of Donald Trump, because Burt Jones served as one of the um, fake electors, uh, uh, other Republicans call them alternate electors, he was on that slate of electors that was sent up to the National Archives, even though Donald Trump was not elected in Georgia. Um, Burt Jones had gotten really wrapped into that um, controversy, and now, uh, obviously, he doesn't want to talk about it. He has said he wants to focus on the future, but that's going to continue to be just a huge series of headlines here in Georgia, and so um, he'll have to talk about that at some point, but then also we'll be looking to hear what his agenda is, because he's got a new, you know, very powerful role in Atlanta. And it'll be interesting to see, too, what how Democrats kind of, um, you know, fit into all of this, because there's a lot of new Democratic faces, too, because of all the people that ran uh, for statewide offices. So we're going to, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting. I'm sure we'll be talking about it. We will. Patricia Murphy from the Atlanta Bye. Journal and Constitution, the Political Insiders. Thanks for being with me today. Take care. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. Rod Huey is here with me. I am. We think we got drama over here. Boy, that's Uh, drama. There is a lot of drama, and it is a very strange story because any family, any family has problems. And if you were to tell every bad story about your family, any family would look bad, Rod. Absolutely. But, you know, I don't think it's many of us that has a dog bowl that would smash if you... <laughs> we'll get so we're going to get into that. We we'll get into that, that in a minute. Roger Gewalt <laughs> is joining us right now. He is... Uh, we talk to him every other week. He lives in the U.K. He is an American, uh, so he has an interesting perspective. And, Roger, I mean, we can't get enough of this stuff over here where, we're, where there are these little clips coming out from the Anderson Cooper and now the Tom Bradbyard uh, interviews that are running this Sunday. But it seems like here anyway that the tide is turning against uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle because it just seems like they're just making stuff up as they go along. Well, 
I think it. I think you're right, Martha. Um, I think it, it is starting to catch up in the U.S. with the U.K. Um, as as you know, I've just come back from America, um, and I, I think there are two differences that I observed. Um, the first is that America is having a tough time politically, economically, cost of living crisis, all the rest. But you know. It isn't as bad as it is in England, where they have almost every public service on strike. The Army and the Navy and the Air Force are running some things. It, it is so bad. The cost of living crisis and energy and food here are far worse than they are in the States. And people here are really suffering. Nobody can get to work today. This is like the third day this week. There are no trains. And... The basic attitude of the Brits is, you know, we've got all this misery to contend with, and here are these two with nothing better to do. And I, I think their attitude, there is some sympathy in some areas, but I think the general attitude here is these privileged people who have nothing better to do than air their family laundry, which is just something that British people don't do and and as you say in america it's a thing it's a family for goodness it's it's so sad the 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 second difference is that there there was a lot more sympathy to their cause in america uh than there has been here i think people here are very angry bordering on disgust fed up to the back teeth and they don't want to hear any more about these two now what's going on uh drama wise as you say um, is if you remember the release of the Harry Potter books, millions uh, of pounds and dollars were spent on preventing the storylines from being leaked, and then yet little bits were leaked professionally uh, by public relations people here and there. That's what's going on right now with Bradby and Anderson Cooper and all. You know, they're leaking little bits. My brother pushed me. This, I mean, it's just so silly. People here are sick of it. The sympathy is waning. I felt in the States there was still more sympathy, but I think that's weakening as well now. This is just not something that you do, particularly at a time like this. Well, it is kind of like, you know, President Biden over the holidays, again, I have no problem with presidents taking vacations because they're really never on vacation. A president isn't. But instead of going to his beach house in Rehoboth, he went to the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is very expensive. U.S. Virgin Islands, the average American can't afford to go to the U.S. Virgin Islands because it's very expensive to go there. And I think that by doing that, it was a little tone deaf. And that's kind of what's happening. Oprah Winfrey famously, over the holidays, posted this picture of this opulent dinner table uh, with all her guests there. And she got some pushback, and she didn't understand. But I think that when regular people, people that are working two jobs, say they're a nurse and a firefighter or a pastor and a teacher or something like that, and they're making you know $100,000 a year, $80,000 a year together, when they see people that have more money than they can spend in 10 lifetimes uh, doing things and not being aware that other people are having a harder time, they don't like that. They love it when times are good, seeing how good people are doing. But when times are bad, you have to be a little more or a little less tone deaf. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, I, I remember, I can't remember. Oh, David Geffen, the music mogul. 
I remember him, I'm, I'm sure, with the best will in the world, if you recall, sending a picture of him and his friends on his ginormous yacht <laughs> somewhere in some faraway sea with a sunset, uh, isolating when COVID started, wishing everyone well. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure he meant well, but people were grinding their teeth. Yeah, and, and these two haven't, they, it's like our prime minister here, Rishi Sunak. I mean, he's so rich. He, he, he just hasn't got a clue. They just, they, they, you know, they're just out of touch with the sort of people you describe. So uh, I, I wish they would stop it. And I think that most people in Britain and the people I spoke to in America are starting to feel the same way, would come to that conclusion. We ran a poll, uh, Martha and Rod, asking after the Netflix series and the book, what do you think will happen? And there were three questions. Uh, the, uh, three possible uh, responses. The first one was absolutely nothing, uh, and that got 25%. Um, the second one was uh, they will be vindicated. That got 25%. And the third one was they will be marginalized, and that one got 50 Yeah, I think that it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. Now, you mentioned Rishi Sunak, who is the new prime minister, who has now outlived, you know, Liz Liz Truss. So so he's going to he's not going to be the shortest serving prime minister. But he does seem to be trying to um, be aware of things that are going on in the British economy. Um, How's he doing? Uh, not very well. Uh, he gave a speech last night, yes, well, yesterday, uh, in which he said, I want you to judge me by five things, inflation going down, blah, 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 blah. Um, all of the news outlets, all of the media picked it up this morning. Uh, I was on one program, and, and they all pretty much said the same thing. It was just empty waffle. It was fluff because there was no how, why, when, nothing. It was like truth, beauty, and justice. And this is the same thing he did when he was electioneering against Liz Trust. It's just a lot of empty fluff is the way it was felt. He was uh, Listeners on uh, 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 Rupert Murdoch's talk TV channel were asked to rate him uh, out of 10. And the ratings this morning were one was zero, one was one, one was three, one was four, and the highest rating was six. So I don't think uh, that he is uh, perceived as doing that well at all. And today, the leader of the loyal opposition, the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, Starmer, is going to give his similar speech. And what he's going to spend his time doing, as he usually does, is putting down the conservatives, saying, you know, they're no good because of this, that, and the other, and we're going to do better. But everybody expects that to be uh, just about as equally empty, because what he'll say is, you know, we wouldn't do this, we'll do that, but without any facts or hard backup or explanation. We've just got a real crisis of leadership in this country. Roger Gewald, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, hopefully, you know, things will get better all the way around. Thanks for being with me. Happy New Year, guys. Happy thank New you. Year. Happy New Year. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com. And you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.